Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And if you're following along with me in one of the blue uh, pew Bibles, church Bibles, we don't have pews, uh, but in one of those blue Bibles, you can find Revelation 2 on page 1028. And uh, we are sort of starting a new series called The Seven Letters of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Um, Jesus uh, speaks a message to the seven churches in Asia Minor um, at the end of the first century. And so we are sort of continuing through the book of Revelation, but I'm calling this a different series than last week. It's just a distinction. doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, let's read Revelation chapter 2. Why don't you stand with me, if you're willing and able, and we will give our attention to God's word. Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying uh, to your church? And would we uh, not be people who hear uh, your word and walk away? and immediately forget it, but would we be people who uh, listen to your word and put it into practice? Uh, as uh, James tells us that um, we could be like a person who looks at ourselves in the mirror and immediately forgets what we look like. Uh, so is a person who hears your word but doesn't respond. Would you be at work in us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, yesterday morning at the Hales home was one of those rare mornings when there was nothing on the uh, calendar. Uh, all the soccer games got rained out, praise the Lord, and uh, <laughs> it was incredible to just have one of those lazy, quiet mornings where the kids, you know, they are up before the parents and watching uh, cartoons or whatever. I guess they can choose what they want to watch now. But I remember as a kid on those lazy Saturday mornings getting up and you watched whatever was on, you know, TV. Um, and uh, it, it just kind of brought to mind watching Saturday morning cartoons as a kid and watching the Jetsons. You remember the Jetsons? And like I did this whole, I went down this rap hole as I started thinking about the Jetsons. But, you know, meet George Jetson, his boy Elroy, Jane, his wife, daughter Judy. Um, and I love that like intro sequence that's just this kind of vision of a future world where uh, everybody flies around in cars that look basically like Teslas 
And um, they have the little, you know, the, he like puts his hand over his kid and the little glass closure and they just zip down the school and it's so cool. And uh, I remember watching that as a kid and, um, you know, thinking it, it, it was so cool. But my favorite scene is the one where George gets up in the morning and he kind of just hops on the conveyor belt. And it just takes him through, like, you know, like he, he is showered, he is dressed, he is fed, and he is delivered to uh, work, and he puts his feet up on the desk, and um, he really doesn't have to do anything. Um, he just stands there, and it's all sort of taken care of. And, uh, you know, as a kid, of course, I didn't really realize like, the worldview that was being implied um, in this show, but... And I didn't realize this, but I saw this on Wikipedia. Um, I don't know where, how they communicated this in the show, but apparently George worked two days a week, one hour a day. Um, that was his job. But <laughs> think about what, what I, I feel like it, it's communicating, like what for, for our culture I think has become this dream that there is a time in the future where we will automate the most inconvenient and difficult parts of life. And our lives will just become easier and easier and easier. And uh, we'll kind of be able to, to just kind of live life on cruise control. And as much as we can laugh at that in the Jetsons, I think that's actually the dream that many of us have. Um, I remember a couple of years ago talking to a friend of mine uh, who was a little bit, he's years, couple, several years older than I am, and his kids had just, his youngest child had just left home to go to college. And um, he was talking about how, um, how amazed he was that becoming an empty nester did not really change his life. Uh, the thing that was remarkable about becoming an empty nester was how everything really stayed the same. And he, he said that, um, you know, I felt like we were just going to get to this point in life where we could coast a little bit. And yet he discovered that after years of you know, faithfully parenting and the ups and downs of work and following Jesus through it all, that um, this point of being able to hit cruise control and just kind of coast through the years uh, didn't really come. And I think now more than ever, we have in our culture this longing that at some point, just a few months down the road, uh, things are going to get easier. We're going to turn a corner. Uh, the road is going to straighten out. There will be enough in the bank account. The kids will learn how to tie their shoes or whatever it is. And life will be a little bit easier and we can kind of hit cruise control. And yet it never really seems to happen. And I think that that is exacerbated by uh, the reality. Like, I mean, technology makes our lives easier, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, we have some measure of affluence. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just kind of put life on cruise control, have the trappings of the good life, and automate some of the inconvenience of it, that life wouldn't have to require so much effort from us. And so I think, in short, we live in a time where, where there are really two different stories, two competing stories that are told about the way our life ought to look. And the first um, is the story that um, it, I think is being constantly played out for us on social, social media especially. It's that idea. It's the idea that there is this beautiful ideal version of life where things are easy. There's always another vacation coming. There's always enough in the bank account. We can, you know, we always have plenty of food and it gets delivered to our house without us having to shop for it. Um, 
You know, we can just go on cruise control and not have to hustle so much. And then the second narrative that competes for our hearts and tells us the way that life ought to be in this world is true, but it's not true in the way that our world thinks it is. But the way our world talks about it is to say something like, the meaning of life is love. And if you truly love and live a life of love, then you will have all that you ever need. And it's true, but I'm going to tell you why we don't experience that in our culture in a minute. Because in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus addresses a letter, a message to uh, the, well, seven churches. Um, and some Christians have kind of looked at these seven different messages and, and kind of tried to view them as uh, addressing different ages or dispensations in the, in the history of Christianity. There's really no biblical basis for that view. What Jesus is, is doing is he is talking to seven real historic congregations that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in each of these churches, um, at the end of the, uh, the first century AD, uh, well, well, let me say it like this, there were more than seven congregations in Asia Minor by this point. Um, and yet Jesus, he's, he's addressing these seven historic churches. So these are real churches, and he identifies with these churches. But that number seven in the Bible is, is the symbolic number of completeness. And so there's a sense in which while Jesus is addressing the particular concerns of these seven churches, he's also addressing his church, the complete church. And so in a broader sense, his message to each of these churches applies to his church today. And there are a number of common features in each of these letters. Um, when he addresses these seven historical churches, uh, there's this pattern over and over again. He, he begins by identifying himself, Jesus does as the author, with reference to one of the things he, uh, one of the ways he was described in this vision that the Apostle John had of Jesus that we looked at last, last week. And so he says in this letter to the church in Ephesus, he, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand uh, and who walks among the golden lampstands. And we saw in Revelation 1 last week, that um, <clears throat> these seven stars are the seven, uh, what, the seven stars of the seven churches, or I think that's right, the seven stars of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the angels of the churches. I might have had that backwards. But he's identifying himself with reference to how he was described in chapter 1. And then in each of these letters, to, in the letter to each church, he, he um, identifies sort of certain characteristics of the city that this church was found in. And I think what that communicates to us is Jesus knows his people. He, 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 he knows his church. He's not speaking in like kind of theoretical, just theological terms. But he's saying, I know you. I care about you. I know what you're going through. I know what your life is like. And in, uh, in most of these churches, he compliments, I think, all but to the church of Laodicea. He's something to affirm in the life of the congregation. And then in all but one or two of the letters, he, he also has a critique or a correction to offer to his people. Um, Jesus knows us. Jesus is with us. And Jesus um, holds out both encouragement and correction. And then in each of the, so I guess you could summarize like this. In each of these letters, Jesus diagnoses a problem. Uh, he writes a prescription, and then he holds out a promise. 
And so today we're looking at this first letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, and Ephesus is a place, as I kind of did a little bit of reading on this this week, it sounds remarkably like Orange County to me. Um, Ephesus, I mean, it's different, of course, but Ephesus, you know, there was a theater in Ephesus, there was a library, there were paved streets. That doesn't shock us, but in, in the first century, that was a big deal. It was a very cultured place. Um, in Ephesus, there was a harbor, and so um, the harbor was this uh, point of commerce, and it was sort of a tr uh, crossroads, and so it brought people from different nations and cultures together, and it provided a level of affluence um, in the city. And then the, uh, the major characteristic uh, of the city of Ephesus was that it was the home to the temple to the goddess uh, Artemis, or Diana, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, Artemis came to be known as the goddess of love. And so you could say it like this. Ephesus was a place where there was a lot to do. People tended to have the means to do those things. And everybody was obsessed with sex. Sounds a little bit like a place that we live, doesn't it? And it was warm. It was also warm. <laughs> Very much like Orange County. And so it was in this city that one of the most prominent churches in the history of Christianity um, grew and flourished. Uh, this church, I, I think, was planted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul spent, uh, I think, three different visits, uh, made three different trips to Ephesus. He spent more time in Ephesus than in any of the other churches he started. Um, he had to leave Ephesus because as he began to preach and teach about Jesus, people stopped worshiping Artemis. And the craftsmen that made statues of Artemis and sold them were going out of business and they began to riot. And so Paul had to leave Ephesus to save his life. And so he left and he left Timothy behind and Timothy began to pastor the church in Ephesus. And then according to Christian tradition, Timothy was murdered by the Romans. And after Timothy was murdered, the apostle John became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And it's some years after that that the same apostle John is now living in exile on the island of Patmos. And he is the one who receives the revelation and records this message to this church that he loved. And so Jesus, through John, addresses this church that he loves in a place that's very similar to us, to where we live. And he says, you've embraced life on cruise control. And I want you to embrace a different story. I want you to embrace the story that the meaning of life is found through love. So I want you to look with me at the diagnosis that Jesus offers, the recipe that he prescribes, or the prescription that he prescribes, and then very briefly, the promise that he holds out. So first, let's look at Jesus' diagnosis of this church. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. In verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And um, Jesus is commending this church for their faithfulness. He's saying, you've been patient. You have endured um, suffering. You have not given in to um, the pressures of the culture around you, but you've been faithful. And so he commends them. And then he also commends them for their orthodoxy, their, their love of sound doctrine. He says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Uh, you haven't been taken in by the false teachers, by those, 
you know, TV preachers with big smiles and greasy hair that offer a gospel that is not really good news. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 6 to say that you, it's funny, Jesus says, good job, you hate people that I hate. <laughs> Seems like a really strong thing for Jesus to say, but you, you hate the Nicolaitans, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't really know uh, for sure who the Nicolaitans are, but some people think that in Acts 6, there is a, a, somebody who's chosen to replace Judas as one of the apostles, and one of those men was Nicholas. Uh, that's, we know that's true in Acts 6, but some people think that Nicholas uh, began to teach, he was not chosen to be an apostle, and that he began to teach that you didn't need to repent in order to follow Jesus, that you could live in a self-indulgent lifestyle and still be a follower of Jesus. Um, Jesus loves to forgive, I love to sin, this is a really great arrangement. And um, we don't know for sure, but we think that maybe that's um, the message that was rejected by the church in Ephesus. Not that we don't all struggle with sin, but that um, a call to a, a, like a hedonistic lifestyle and follow in, 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 in discipleship of Jesus is counter to the gospel. It's clear what he's saying. You haven't endured false teachers. You love the truth. And so you take these things together. They love the truth and they have endured patiently. And it's a picture of a really great church. Um, it's a church that looks where things are going really well. I mean, their, their website is full of pictures of beautiful, smiling children, and they've got great Sunday school programs, and they've got great small group ministry, and um, everything is going well. They must have a really good preacher because they really like sound teaching. Um, and so Jesus compliments them, and there's a sense in which we would love to... Um, like what Jesus says about their church, we would love that to be said about our church. It looks really good, uh, at least on paper. But everything is kind of building towards this but. We've all had the experience where you know, your boss brings you in and he's telling you all these things that you do well, or she's telling you all these things you do well. But you're kind of just waiting for this moment where there's this but. <laughs> and uh, you don't hear anything, you don't remember anything because Whatever comes after the but sort of seems to change everything. And in this case, I think it really does. Um, Jesus says, you, you, um, you know, you've done all of these things, but in verse 4 he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And that's pretty gutty, isn't it? Um, he's, he's saying you have so much going for you except love. Everything looks really great on the surface. Everything looks really good um, in the picture and the letters that you send to your supporters. But there's no love. Uh, he's saying you've been zealous for the truth. You've been willing to endure suffering. But there's no joy in your actions. It's a picture, I think, of a church that has, been, uh, that has put their life on cruise control. It's a picture of a church where uh, they have... Um, manage the messiness out of life together. They have managed away the risk of loving one another. It's a church that looks really great, and yet under the surface, people are suspicious of each other. Um, you get what I'm saying. And I think that the I, I think that the way to describe this, like I said, is to say that this is a church that has figured out how to live life on cruise control. Because what we're saying when we want this kind of life where we can coast, where we can live on cruise control, 
is a life where we can automate the difficult things, the inconveniences uh, out of our lives, where things look good on the surface, and yet we've been able to automate the difficult parts. And so Jesus' diagnosis here is devastating because he's saying everything looks good, except you've forgotten love. Uh, you have stayed away from the messy business of loving actual people. And the phrase, you know, the way he says it is, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And it, it's not real clear. Does Jesus mean, um, when he says you've abandoned the love you had at first, is he saying you've abandoned me, like your love from, from Jesus, for God? Or is he saying you've abandoned your love for each other? And, and I think that the best way to answer that is to say both. Um, it's clear throughout the, the, uh, the Bible that love for God and love for uh, each other goes hand in hand. They always go together. Jesus, I think, is saying if we say that we love God but we don't love each other, then we don't actually love God either. So Jesus is saying to his church, you know, your theology is orthodox. Like, you're nailing it. Um, and it doesn't matter without love. He's saying that you can have the perfect denomination, the perfect statement of faith. You can read the best translation of the Bible. You can have the perfect worship style, great programs. You can get all of that stuff right, and that is important. And yet, without love, we are missing the point. Without love, nobody is going to want to hear our message. And I think that if we're honest, that critique applies largely to Bible-believing churches today. Um, we are zealous for the truth. We are willing to be ridiculed, but we don't love well. If I'm honest, that critique just guts me because I think about the way as I have... Um, been your pastor for three years. I think in my desire to see our church grow and flourish and thrive, that often love gets left behind. I'm sorry. Love can often become an afterthought when life is on cruise control. And here I think the key to understanding Jesus' diagnosis is in verse 3. My friend, um, Mike Kanjian, who's a pastor outside of Baltimore, um, made this point. Right? He says, um, there's these, the simple phrase in verse 3 where Jesus is assessing the church in Ephesus and one thing he says about them is, you have not grown weary. And um, at first I think that sounds like a compliment. Um, but, but it's strange because Jesus is saying you have you have endured, you have been patient. Uh, you've been long-suffering, but you haven't grown weary. And I think what Jesus is, is saying is that love is always messy. And um, I think what he's showing us is that um, truth and long-suffering will ring hollow. Uh, when our, let me back up and say it like this. It seems like a compliment because they're being told that you've um, they've been long-suffering. They've Okay, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying now. Love is always messy. And life on cruise control is the desire uh, to 
get rid of the mess, to get rid of the difficulty, to um, automate that out of our lives. And this is what I was saying a few minutes ago, is why I think that when our culture says that all you need is love, it tends to ring hollow because what we tend to mean by that is you can slap the words all you need is love on a beautiful picture. And it looks really good, but actually loving people is much, much more difficult than that. Um, real love is always messy because real love is pouring yourself out for others. And every parent knows this intuitively, every husband knows this, every wife knows this, every friend knows this. Um, you know, every parent knows that love requires sleepless nights and changing diapers and, um, you know, trying to patiently say for the hundredth time the same thing without shouting at your children. Right? That's, that's what love is. Love is wading into the mess. Um, I was talking recently, ran into a neighbor of ours and um, didn't know this, but she, uh, she told me that she and her husband were separated. And, um, and I just began to say, I'm so sorry. And she says, it's okay, we still have a great relationship. And I thought that is so heartbreaking to hear, um, you know, a, a couple who have been together for 20 plus years. And yet somehow in the midst of the work of raising children and work and a household and all of the stuff that the marriage got put on cruise control, and it almost feels like a cliche to say it, but as soon as the youngest child leaves home and goes off to college, you look at each other and go, what is even holding us together anymore? And to be able to say, no, we have a great relationship. We just don't love each other anymore. I don't know how you finish that statement. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And what our world doesn't understand and what we don't understand is that love is always messy Love will always cost us. Love is an act of giving ourselves away. It's not just a matter of good intentions and happy feelings. And so Jesus puts the choice before us. Will we, will we long for this life of living on life on cruise control? Or even if we don't experience it, that's still what we want. That's still what we think our life should look like. Or will we embrace a life of love which can only be obtained when we are willing to grow weary for one another? That's Jesus' diagnosis. What's his prescription? Well, we have to see um, that the solution to that is not to just try harder um, because it will never work. And Jesus' prescription is this, remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, and redo. He says, first, you have to remember. Uh, remember, you know, remember where you started from is basically what he's saying. Um, the good news of the gospel is that we follow a God who didn't just shout down truth from heaven at us, but actually leaves the safety and comfort of heaven and takes on our flesh. To say that God loves us isn't to say like he had warm feelings from afar. It's to say he took on our flesh and he became weary for us. Uh, in John chapter 4, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and traveling, and he goes through Samaria, a place that a Jew would never really want to be caught. But he walks through Samaria, and he sits down at this well, and it says that he sat down because he was weary. And as he sits there, tired by the well, in the middle of the day, this woman comes out, uh, and she is hated by her friends. 
And uh, Jesus, you can just kind of go picture him going like, oh gosh, like I thought I was going to get a moment alone. And he ends up having this conversation with this woman where he offers her living water that will satisfy her soul. Jesus was willing to become weary for us. In John 15, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what love is. Love isn't feeling positive about people. Love isn't liking the way that somebody looks. Love is sacrificing ourselves for someone. And so, of course, we see this most poignantly on the cross, where Jesus is lifted up, naked, giving himself up, all that he is for us, exchanging places with us, where he takes upon himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, and he gives us instead his perfection, his glory, his beauty. And as he hangs there on the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. He's tired. He is weary. He jumps into the mess with us. You can't really love yourself into willing someone, can you? <laughs> I mean, it is impossible to just resolve this per- I'm going to love this person. You cannot do it. But you can remember that you've been loved. That is the only thing that will enable you to love someone else. My wife and I, with our kids, when you know, we had in the middle of these moments of like just, what is going on? <laughs> And in our worst moments, we're like, you have to stop, right? But in our best moments, we, you know, hug our children and say, I love you. Like, remember who you are. You're my child. I love you. I care about you. This weekend, I was just frustrated, discouraged, and angry, and feeling alone. And my wife comes to me and just says, you've got to tell yourself a better story than that. There are reasons to be upset. There are reasons to be angry in life. But that's not the whole story, is it? This life is pretty good. God has been really faithful to us. We have to tell ourselves that story. We have to remember what's really true. The counselor friend who says that uh, when a couple comes in for marriage counseling, he often begins by asking them to tell the story of how they first met. And he says, I'm not just doing that because I want to get to know them, though I am, but, but it's also because it, it, there's this hope that in remembering how you first met, that it will, re- will rekindle that love that was there in the beginning, but has been placed on cruise control. If we're living life on cruise control or longing for a time when we can just coast for a minute, you've got to remember who you are. You've got to remember that you have a God who loves you in the truest sense. He doesn't shout at you, just do better. (laughs) He comes and he suffers. He jumps into the mess of loving you. He left his safety for you, his comfort for you. He emptied himself because he loves you. And he says to you, come to me and I will give you rest. You who are weary. You've got to remember. Secondly, Jesus says you have to repent. To repent is very simple. (laughs) You have to stop doing what you're doing. (laughs) A repent is a military term. It means about face. It means if you're going this direction, stop it and go that way. You've got to remember and then you've got to stop. You've got to turn around. You've got to stop doing what you're doing and do something different. Stop striving for a life where we could just avoid the inconvenience 
whatever it is we're trying to avoid because it doesn't exist. We've got to repent. And then thirdly, redo. He says, do the works that you did at first. I think that we always have this temptation to believe that, um, that faith and to believe that love are about what we feel and that actions will come later. And we have this view in our culture that like, it would be inauthentic to do the right thing if you don't feel like doing it. But I think what the Bible would have us believe is that there are times when you've got to do the right thing and pray that the feelings will come later. We've got love that doesn't express itself in action. It's not really love. I've been struck recently with uh, the realization that so much of life in our world, um, it, I mean, this sounds obvious to say this, but like, it's just everyone for themselves. And, and I think that the way that that often plays out for us is that we will stand by and say nothing while we watch friends just make bad choices. Um, I have a friend that I feel like uh, just from afar, like watching him drive his life into the ground by overworking. And you can see it, like the toll it takes on his family. And it's so tempting to just say, I, you know, I think we spiritualize it by saying things like, well, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? It's not judging somebody to say, look, I love you enough to risk an awkward conversation with you. It's not judging somebody to say, I love you enough to jump into the midst of this with you. To come alongside you to, um, to carry your burden. Um, and so I, I, I think as Christians as we do this, where we just stand by and we watch people little by little walk away from their faith. Uh, we, we watch each other just bail on commitments um, and as I've seen this, you know, one of the things I've been struck by is as we read through the Bible over and over again how God calls us to love each other in act, with action. In Genesis 4, I think it's in Genesis 4, I think it's the second question that is ever asked in the Bible. God comes to Cain and he says, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Cain who has killed his brother. And the resounding response of the whole rest of the Bible is, yes, you are. It's your job. It's our job to love each other. And over and over again, the Bible is pleading with us to love each other enough to have an awkward conversation and to stay true to our commitments Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, If you follow me, I will make you fish for other people. In Luke 10, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, he says, uh, I want you to go into all of the world and make disciples. In Luke 14, he tells the story, the parable of the great banquet, where he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a great banquet, and the time came and nobody showed up, so God sent his servants into the world and said, compel them to come in. <laughs> Hebrews twelve fifteen, the author of Hebrews says, see to it that no one, or see to it that none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. 
Not see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God, but see to it that none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. What all of these verses and more say is that it is our job to love one another, and love is messy. Every one of these verses implies that there is somebody headed in the wrong direction, and the thing about going in the wrong direction is you don't know when you're going in the wrong direction. And you don't need my permission or anyone else's permission to come alongside a friend and say, I love you enough to jump into the mess with you. To risk awkwardness. Like awkwardness. Awkwardness is not that big of a deal. (laughs) There are so many things that we don't do because we think that they might be awkward. You don't need anybody's permission to have a hard conversation to jump into the mess of each other's lives. And yes, it will cost us, of course it will, but then you will really be living because you will really be loving. And the gospel is true. Jesus laid down his life for you. He cares for you. He loves you. He jumped into the mess with you and he invites you to jump into the mess with others. That's the prescription. Finally, the promise. Verse seven, Jesus concludes all of the letters In Revelation 2 and 3, by saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And I think what he's saying is we need God's help to understand his word. We can hear, but we cannot put it into practice without his help, so we should ask for it. And then he says here in verse 7, To the one who conquers, and listen, I, I, I think the word conquer would be better translated overcome. Some translation, because... He's not saying that you, um, that you are victorious at the expense of someone else. We are overcoming sin. We are overcoming the world. We are overcoming the lies that we are told. It says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And here's, here's what I think Jesus is saying. That desire to live a life where we automate away the inconvenience and the hurt and the pain and the struggle. What that really is, is a longing for life without pain. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a life without pain. The problem is, we sang earlier, the world was good, the world is broken, the world will be redeemed. And we live in that middle part where the world is being redeemed. And the message of the book of Revelation is that God is work at work even now, to make all things new. But the work isn't done yet. I've been reading this um, book called War and Remembrance, which is like a 1,400-page novel about that takes place against the landscape of World War II. And it's, it's historical fiction, but what's, what's true is what historians, uh, what's true through this novel is what historians also tell us, that by the time the Allies were on continental Europe the victory was all but assured it was just the details that remained to play out that's what the book of Revelation is telling us we now live in this time where the details are still playing themselves out that the end is certain and God promises those who are faithful that they will eat of the tree of life the tree of life that was there in the garden of Eden a tree of life that is there in the Garden City in Revelation 21 and 22. 
where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more struggle. That's what we are longing for when we long for a life lived on autopilot. And God is the only one who can fulfill that story for us. And so the choice really is yours. Which story are you going to tell yourself about the way your life ought to be? Are you going to tell yourself that life should be easier than this, and so I'm going to long for that time when I can just coast for a little bit? Or will you instead choose to live the story of love, which can only be had by embracing weariness? That first story is shouted at us constantly. Every time you turn on the media, the computer, every story you hear, um, the longing for cruise control screams at us every place we look. And so if we're going to live the story of love by embracing the reality of growing weary for the sake of others, we have to learn how to sing louder than the noise that screams at us. Yesterday, Ashley and I were reading a book by a woman named Aubrey Sampson, and she told this story about going to see a play at this theater in downtown Chicago, and she said, my friend invited me at the last minute, and I went in not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And I went into this theater in the round, and as the lights came down, um, a choir in black took the stage. And a screen lowered, and the choir began to sing this funeral dirge. And it was a slow, mournful, melancholy tune. And as the choir sang, images began to show on the screen, raw images of a starving, starving mother and baby and a high school students participating in a walkout and images of poverty and corruption. And it just was very, very dark. And she thought, why in the world did my friend take me to this play? And the mood began to... Um, uh, you know, mood grew heavy. And she said, as we were watching this unfold, what we didn't realize is that another choir had come in and surrounded the audience as if to, I mean, metaphorically hug that audience. And very slowly at first they began to sing um, U2s. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And almost imperceptibly at first they begin to sing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And slowly they begin to get louder and louder and louder. While the choir on the stage talking and singing about how dark this world is began to grow ever so faintly quieter. Did I say that wrong? I don't know. Until the final crescendo as the choir sang, I believe in the kingdom come, you broke the bones and you, or you broke the bonds and you loosed the chains. You carried the cross of all my shame. The choir singing the song of hope overtook the sound of the choir singing about the reality of life in a broken world. And I think that is such a beautiful image of what the church is all about. It will not do to pretend like everything is fine and this world is in a really broken, messed up, dark place sometimes. But Jesus is speaking to his church and he's not asking us to run from the reality of life in this world or to minimize it or to hide from it or to try to escape it. But he is calling us to sing the song of love in the midst of a dark world. Don't try to automate away the inconvenience. Instead, embrace love and the willingness to grow weary. And as we do, the song of the gospel will grow ever so much louder. And we'll be able to live with hope.
Would you pray with me? Oh God, we long to be people who sing the gospel song, hear the gospel song even, to hear a song, to sing a song of hope in a world that is often frustrating and not the way that it should be. And so I pray that you would uh, give us the faith that we cannot muster up on our own. Would you help us to remember remember your great love for us. Remember the love that is um, explained to us in the pages of Scripture and that we are about to partake of as we come to your table. Would you help us to remember to repent and to then actually love each other? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the fact that Jesus leaves a meal to remember him by. He doesn't just give us words. He doesn't just give us a book. But he gives us a meal and says, I want you to take my life, my body, my blood into you. I want to nourish your faith with all that I am. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and after giving thanks for it, he broke it and he offered it to his followers saying, take and eat, this is my body that is broken for you. And after they had eaten together, he took the cup and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink, for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, the Apostle Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is a celebration. This is a celebration for people uh, who aren't perfect, who don't love each other perfectly, but are placing our trust and our hope in Jesus. And so if you've yet to come to the point in your life and in your faith where you embrace Jesus and say to him, I need you, then I would encourage you to simply remain in your seats. If you come weary, if you come bruised and broken, if you come hopeful, if you come with excitement, but I want to encourage you to come with a smile on your face as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Sam and I are going to uh, serve you. I'll ask you to come forward in groups of about 10 or so. And we'll feed the first group. The next group will go uh, sit back down. The next group can come forward. A um, couple instructions. We have both gluten-free and included gluten bread uh, in the trays. The, the light-colored liquid is grape juice. The wine uh, is red. Uh, let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table. Oh, God, would you take this bread and this wine and would you use them to nourish us God we uh, life in this world is hard and yet we want to be people whose lives are marked by love love for you, love for one another love for our neighbors and co-workers but we cannot do that on our own so would you strengthen us, encourage us and nourish us we pray in Jesus name, Amen